Hello, everybody. I'm so happy you guys came to church today. Thank you for being here. Hey, before we begin, I, I just watched David's baptism. I think that was my third time. And I caught him last night out in the atrium after service. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I was hoping to keep it a secret from everybody why I was no longer flying. And he looked at me and goes, I guess it's too late for that. <laughs> and I said, yeah. But I looked him in the eyes and I told him this. I said, David, all weekend long, there's going to be a room full of people who are imperfect. And a bunch of us have secrets ourselves, uh, things that control us, things that we pretend aren't there but really impact us strongly. And I said, David, if you help one, two, a handful, dozens of people uh, find a way to be honest and find a way to bring into the open the things that are hidden, I said, it's going to be all worth it. And I loved Tony, who baptized him, has been meeting with him, and they were both pilots. And I, I absolutely love that description. I don't know anything about flying, but that positive takeover where um, you say you have the controls, and somebody says you have the controls, and, and you say, God, you have the controls. And before we even begin, I, I just felt moved. We haven't done this any of the other services, but I wonder if you just close your eyes for, for just a moment with me. If there's anybody in the room, when you saw that, you realized I've never given God the controls of my life. I've never said to him, you have control. And he said, I have control. And you confirmed, God, you have control. But if that's you and you know this moment, things in life has been orchestrating and pointing you towards this moment. And it's time for you to say, God, you have control of my life. If that's you. Just raise your hand and wave at me. You say, Nate, that's me. Yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir. Yes, 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 yes. All three of you right there. Yes, sir. Yep. I see you back there. You're a son. You're forgiven right there. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Right next to you. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Right there. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. All three of you. It's beautiful. It's a family. If you're in the balcony, yeah. Okay, the three of you at the very top there. You're his. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, right there. Wow, that's beautiful. So everybody, yeah, yeah. If you raise your hand, would you open your eyes? Um, Something just happened. It's the beginning of a journey. I will tell you that. But you just made him not somebody you believed in, but somebody you trust. You've surrendered your life. He calls you his daughter. He calls you his son. You're made new, all right? And God's going to walk with you through life. Lean into him. Don't go back to the controls. Let him control. Would you uh, applaud everybody who made that decision? That is... I'm going to tell David about that too, okay? I'm going to say, hey, it was all worth it. Wow. We never do that at that point in the service. I don't know. It's like time to go home now or something. Actually, uh, we've been doing this series we call Redefine, and there are just certain things that we adopt, and oftentimes unknowingly, they're cultural norms. And we describe something, we believe something just because, well, that's how it is. And what's interesting is sometimes the Bible really confronts some of our assumptions and gives us a different way of looking at it. 
We might say it's God's economy, God's perspective. And so we let the scriptures redefine some things. So we talked about uh, relationships. We talked about friendships. And I'd like to talk about success, success. How do we redefine success? Because I believe this. Um, there are so many of us in the room who would, maybe we're pursuing success and it's like a treadmill and success is in achievement. Success is in finding and reaching my goals. Success is in that next big promotion. It's in the company, the next job. It's in that right person. And when success is something like that, it's out there. It's this pursuit of happiness. You end up saying, I I never feel successful. Some of us in the room, and when I even say this, you're going to feel this acutely. It's painful. You heard the phrase, either someone spoke it to you or you hear it in your mind over and over that you're an underachiever and that you'll, you're, you're not living up to your potential. <clears throat> and when we even talk about success, you just have this sense of, I'm a failure. I, that, like, I'm not successful. I'm broken. And that's a painful way to live. Let's take a few moments. I just want to look at a few famous people. You'd recognize, I think, most of their names, if not all of them. See what they had to say about success. See how we can relate to that. And then we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 15, where Jesus redefines success. He redefines it. First one is Winston Churchill. I mean, if you know anything about Winston Churchill, he's the guy that led England through World War II. He's had his ups and his downs. He says this, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. So it's a granted for him, there's going to be failures. He experienced a lot, but there's a sense of, it's me having the tenacity and the strength. I don't lose enthusiasm. I never, ever, ever give up. It's about my internal strength. And here's a man who was very successful in many ways. That's how he defines it. Thomas Edison said this, success is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. So Thomas Edison had a thousand patents. He was known to regularly work for 72 hours straight. So not, not 72 hour work weeks, but he would work for 72 hours straight and then he'd crash and sleep for 18 hours. He'd wake up and work for another 72 hour block. So he says, it's about perspiration. It's about endurance. Very similar to Winston Churchill. It's about me and my drive and my achievements. Now, next would be a different perspective. Richard Branson owns an airline. He says, the more you're actively and practically engaged, the more successful you will feel. A couple of things here. Notice success is a feeling. It's a sense that, yes, I've arrived. He says it's about engagement, that I am doing something meaningful. I'm involved in something. I'm actively engaged. I'm not an observer, but I am intricately involved in whatever it might be. Maya Angelou says this, famous poet, recently deceased. Success is liking yourself, liking what you do, and liking how you do it. So it's more of a existential experience. It's liking who I am, liking what I do, and liking how I do it. Now, there's one challenge here is a recent survey said that 50% of Americans dislike their job, and if they could quit yesterday and not worry about finances, they'd quit. So a lot of us don't like what we do. She's a poet. She loved what she did. So there's a sense of like well-being, like if I'm connected with everything, I like what I do, how I do it, I like who I am, then I'm successful. Legitimate perspective. Deepak Chopra, a spiritualist, writes a lot of books. Lots of people read these books. 
Success in life could be defined as the continued expansion of happiness and the progressive realization of worthy goals. In Western culture, this word is key. We love happiness and we're looking for happiness. And when we're not happy, we think that something must be very, very wrong. And we usually say we're happy when everything's easy, when I'm at peace, when there's not resistance or conflict. And so he says it's that expansion of happiness, not just finding your happiness, but it's always growing, always developing. And this realization of worthy goals, that I set goals and I achieve them. So it's pursuit oriented. Stephen Covey, a business writer, different perspective. If you carefully consider what you want to be said of you in the funeral experience, you'll find your definition of success. So this is a little bit having a deeper perspective. He says, if you sat today, I don't know, anybody have this experience? I think when I was in third grade, my teacher gave me a tombstone and, and told me like to write on my tombstone what I want people to say about me. And I was like, I hope I make it to fourth grade. You know, I just, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't at a place where I'm trying to think. But Stephen Covey says, if, if you could think about what you would want people to say at your funeral. And then you lived a life where they actually could say that. He said that, in his perspective, would be success. And not so much oriented with feelings or achieving goals, a little bit different. Now, all of those are legitimate perspectives. But I think Jesus, just one sentence that we'll focus on, gives us a look at what success might be. That no matter who you are, no matter what you do vocationally, there's a way to say, I'm successful. I'm successful. And it doesn't have to do with achievements and it doesn't have to do with happiness. It's deeper and richer than that. So here's the text, John chapter 15. This is uh, Jesus' last night on earth. And chapter 14, he's been teaching his disciples. Chapter 15, he'll continue, but he's going to pray. He's going to pray. In chapter 16, 17, he's, he's going to pray as well. He's going to pray for his, the people he'll leave behind. He'll pray for everybody in the room. He prays for his future, future disciples. But in chapter 15, he has this moment where he's going to speak to his father. He's fully aware of his destiny. He knows that he will die. Physically, he will die. And, and, and not just a passive death, but this, this painful, agonizing death. And so he's literally facing the end of his life. Now, we're not exactly sure, but Jesus died somewhere between the age of 33 and 36. 33 and 36. So it's not a long life. But he knows in a matter of hours, he's going to face something unimaginable. And his life, his physical life will end. And this is, this is what he says to his father. John chapter 15. Start at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. Just a little side note. When I think about eternal life, and, and I bet it's the same with you, we think about life after this life. When this body ceases to exist, then eternal life starts. But Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So everybody who just raised their hands, you started eternal life moments ago that you would know him and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Now here's our key sentence. This is what we're going to focus on. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Next slide, please. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Let's look at verse 4 just one more time. I have glorified you on earth and finished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus says, I'm at peace right now. He's about to face crucifixion. He's about to face betrayal, rejection, unimaginable pain, emotional, physical. But he says, here's what I can say. I've done the assignment that you asked me to do. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. There's two parts to this. The first part is I have brought you glory. I've brought you glory. What does it mean to bring someone glory? Because that's not a word that we use very often. Okay? If, if an elementary kid came home from school and they had his great report card and your uncle, aunt, grandparent, mom, dad, and you looked at the report card and you said to your kid, this is beautiful. You've brought glory to our family. They just look at you like, what? Glory to our family? Because glory is not a phrase that we throw around a lot. But what is glory? Because Jesus says, here it is. I'm, I'm, I'm facing the end of my life. And one thing that I know for certain is that I have brought glory to you here on earth. So glory. Here's a few definitions of glory. The first would be something like this. To, to make known. To deflect credit and honor toward another. Jesus says, Father, I brought you glory. I've deflected the glory. I've deflected the credit and I've brought honor to you. So imagine Jesus was immensely popular. Tens of thousands would gather around to hear him teach, to watch him do miraculous things. He could have taken all that glory, but there's something. If you read through the book of John in particular, he'll always be saying, it's not about me. It's about my father. He's deflecting honor. He's saying it's about the father. You can also deflect or uh, define glory this way. People have a larger, fuller, more beautiful perspective of God. Jesus says, listen, father, one thing I know that I've done is now people, the, the, the people I've walked with, the people I've talked with, the people that heard me, the people that observed me, they have a larger, fuller, and more beautiful perspective of who you are. Many of them had thought God was angry and had turned against humanity or, or was absent and unkind. But through the words I've spoken and the actions that I've taken, people now have a perspective of God, of you, Father, that's vastly different. And then lastly, you can define glory in chapter 15 of John this way, that God emerges out of obscurity. God emerges out of obscurity. For many people, God is an obscure element of their thinking, their philosophy, their lives. Kind of an addendum on their life. He says, Father, I brought you glory that 
out of obscurity, where, where you weren't considered or thought of, the way I've lived my life, you've been brought out of obscurity and now people are contemplating you and pursuing you, thinking about you like never before. They, they aren't contemplating me. They, they're not focusing on me. I've brought you out of obscurity. Even in the religious culture that Jesus lived in, the Father is now at the center, considered, thought about, worshipped, pursued, dialogued with, to bring out of obscurity. Now, for every human being, there is this profound tension within us. And it has to do with this little thing called pride. Pride. Okay? And it started way back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, where human beings, we wanted recognition. We desired God's job description. We desired independence. And so it is waged war within us that who would be glorified? Who would be honored? Who would get the recognition? And whatever it is in you and I, we want the recognition. We want to be glorified. We want to be honored. And so this tension continues in all of us. But Jesus says part of what it meant to be successful as a human being is that I brought you out of obscurity. I deflected honor towards you. I made you big. I was in the background. People now see you in a new way. The bad news is you and I, every one of us, have an inner boxer, okay? I don't know if you're a boxing fan or not, but you have seen this, I guarantee it. You have never seen a boxer who being interviewed before their fight says, well, you know, I'm really not that good, but I'm just gonna try my best. And That person I'm gonna fight, they're incredible. I have so much respect for them and for their abilities. And they're, like, I'm not sure what's gonna happen. This could be ugly. I've never seen a boxer talk like that. There is an inner boxer. They are self-promoters. What do they talk about? I am the greatest. What I am going to do is going to be recorded in the annals of history. I am, right? It's all about who they are and what they're going to do and how great they are. See, every human being has that inner boxer that wants recognition, that wants respect. And Jesus says, part of what made my life successful is I brought glory to you and I waged that battle of pride. And I said, no, it's about my father. Look to him. And Jesus lived his life perfectly. You and I can't live our lives perfectly. But I can glorify God in the midst of my imperfection. I can point to him even when I fail. Even when I fall short, even when I mess up the story, I can say, but, but there's an ending and there's someone behind this. Look to him. At verse 6, Jesus says, I have revealed you. I've revealed you. That's part of glorifying. Says, I, to people who had never thought about God and what was happening, now you're revealed, you're seen, you're known. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. It's fascinating, this whole idea of glorifying God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, 1 Corinthians 10.31, the people in Corinth are confused about how they're supposed to live their lives, and, and they have this conflict within them, and Paul writes to them a lot about, boy, you guys got to figure out a way to work through this because 
They have these old ways of doing things and they're bringing it into their new life in Jesus. So Paul writes them this. It's just a, a beautiful verse. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay, wait a minute. The glory of God. And Paul says, the glory of God, the way you eat and the way you drink, whatever. What fits into whatever? The way you do business. Your ethics. The way you treat the stranger. The way I go through the checkout line at the busy store is whatever I do. The way, the way I deal with my very, very odd, hard to get along with neighbor. That's part of whatever, the way I work. And here's what Paul says. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, find a way to do it for the glory of God. Now, here's why that passage is difficult for us. Here's why it was difficult to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. They were a product of Greek culture. Corinth was one of the ancient Greek cities. Our mentality, how we view the world, is Greek. And here's what the Greeks did. With the, their ancient philosophers, they divided the world into two parts. Okay, here are the two parts. The things that were secular, okay? Things that are secular, meaning they don't have to do with faith or spirituality. And then this line of bifurcation, this line of division, and the things that were sacred, these are the things that have to do with spirituality. This is, uh, for us, it would be maybe when I pick up my Bible, when I pray, when I'm part of a small group, when I go to church. These are the sacred things. And then on Monday, we have to step over the line into the secular world. And the secular world is our dog-eat-dog -dog business world. It's, it's trying to get ahead. It's driving down rim rock. It's, you know, all of these things. There's... There's the sacred world, there's the secular world. And Paul is trying to communicate that there's, there's no line of division between what's secular and what's sacred. He says, whatever you do, the way you eat, the way you drink, do it all to the glory of God. Fascinating little anecdote here. The Old Testament written in Hebrew, almost extensively. Um, ancient language of the Jewish people. Did you know there is no word in the Hebrew language for spiritual, for spiritual. It doesn't exist. There's no word for spiritual. So we divide that up. Like I'll even use that language. I'll, I'll ask somebody like, how are you doing in your spiritual life? Which the more I think of it, the more I think that is a really bad question. How's your spiritual life? Because your whole life is spiritual. So why don't the Hebrews have a word for spiritual? It's because they believe that everything is spiritual. Whatever I do, the way I eat, the way I drink, the way I work, the way I treat people, all of it is spiritual. So they would say, the food that I'm eating, rather than just enjoying the food, it's not just a physical thing. I'm, I'm, my body needs food or I love the taste. They say, no, no, that's a spiritual moment because there is a God who provides. And the people that you are sitting with are sacred. And the food in front of you it was originally created by your father and he's provided everything. And so I can eat in a spiritual way. I can drink in a spiritual way. I can work in a spiritual way, no matter what your job might be. You say, well, Nate, you don't, you don't understand. 
I work at the refinery. I build houses. I work at the hospital. I'm a teacher. Uh, I write out contracts. I'm a lawyer. You don't, you don't know my industry, Nate. That's easy for you to say. You work in a church. Jesus, well, he was God. He was always teaching people the Bible, making up the Bible as he went along. Like that's, that's all sacred. But here's the truth. Here's the challenge. For the student, it's all sacred. For the artist, it's all sacred. For the teacher, Whoever you might be, there is no dividing line. So Paul urges his friends to say, whatever you do, the way, how you deal with your physical body, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It's exactly what Jesus says. He says, Father, whatever I did, I glorified you. The way I treated people when I was speaking truth, when I was sitting there with children, the way I rested the way I worked, the way I spoke, I brought glory to you. The first part of Jesus' phrase when he says, I found success, is that I brought glory to you in every area of my life. There's a second part. He says, I finished the work that you gave me to do. I finished the work that you gave me to do. There's an assignment for all people. And it came from God. Now, many of us in the room, we say, my job is the farthest thing from spiritual. You, like the people I work with, you wouldn't believe it, Nate. Guess who created work? I've got bad news for you. God. Guess what eternity is going to be filled with? work. I understand that some jobs feel a little bit meaningless. I get that. I get that. But God, when he creates humanity, he creates them in this idyllic, perfect environment called Eden. And what does he do? He looks at them and he says, now, part of being made in my image, part of being fully human is I am giving you assignments. And he says, I want you to care for this world that I have created. Bring further beauty out of it. In Hebrew, he uses the word radah, which means benevolent leadership. Make it better. Be kind, but lead. Move it in a direction. So if you're 30 years old and you're thinking about retirement, that's not a good sign. Because you were created to work. In whatever life looks like after this, it's clear from the Bible. I will be working for God in assignments, managing, doing, serving, whatever he wants from me. That's part of how we are wired. So what's the assignment that God has given you to do? Because remember, we tend to divide it up like, well, it's got to be, here's the spiritual assignments and here's the non-spiritual assignments. But, But there's no distinction. It's all one. So maybe you're a student. You're a student, high school, maybe middle school, maybe college, and you're, you're a sophomore, but as a sophomore, you've contracted a terrible case of senioritis. That's not good. You got a long ways to go. I know what part of the work God has for you to do is. It's to finish school and, and to realize that when you step foot into that school, that is a sacred place. 
and you are surrounded by hundreds, perhaps thousands of people your age who have no idea who God is, who are lonely, who are broken, who are looking for answers, who are having their entire philosophy of life built right there. And God put you right there in that school, in that classroom with those people. And you say, no, 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 it's just, it's just a matter of happen chance. It's just, it just happened. No, 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 God has you there. The work he has for you. Or you're a realtor. Or you work at a factory, a plant. Or you're a healthcare professional. And the same sick people come back to you over and over again. And God says, that office is a sacred place. Because there are people made in my image who I'm going to bring to you. Whatever it is, that's the work that God has given. Now, it's part of a bigger story as well. A bigger story. When Jesus left the planet, he looked at all those people who followed him. And he said, now, go into all the world and speak the good news. Do what I did. Help people who are blinded to God's goodness. See, help people who are captive be free. Set the oppressed free. Liberate. Announce that there's a new way for humans to live. He turned the work over to us. The, the first assignment from God was in the Garden of Eden. It was care for this. The second assignment comes from Jesus, and it's continue what I started. The message and the mission of Jesus. Let it come to fruition in you and through you, wherever you go. Do the work that I sent you to do. Now, this is difficult. I'm going to tell a little bit on myself because I... I I don't do this naturally. And I know you say, well, Nate, you work at a church. It's easy for you. I understand, but I haven't always worked at a church. I, I was um, working my way through college. And I worked full time. I worked at a warehouse and we published books. And I was put in charge of the returns department because of my exceptional leadership abilities. Now, there was only one person in the warehouse department or the return department, and it was me. And this is what my job was. Pallets of books would arrive every day. Pallets, wrapped and, and shrink wrapped. They're all books that hadn't sold, but they'd all had stickers put on them. And so my job was every day, seven hours a day, to pull stickers off of books, take a little bit of acetone, and make sure there was no glue residue left on, and then stack all the books. Thousands of books a day. So I did. It was not fulfilling. I did not feel successful, but then it got worse. It got worse. We changed our warehouse hours. I still needed to work full time. So I said, is there anything else I can do? And the lady who managed the place said, yeah, our janitor quit last week. You can be the janitor. And I'm like, okay, because I had to do it, right? I needed the money. So I'd never been a janitor and I was in the warehouse. I never really went into the big building where the people with ties and, and you know, nice clothes worked. I went in there first day. Nobody gave me an orientation. Like here's a cart. There's a toilet brush. There's, you know, disinfectant and get it all done. Here's the vacuum. I opened up that door. It's dark inside. Nobody's there. I flip on lights. I opened the bathroom for the first time. And these were the sophisticated people that worked there. I looked in that bathroom and all I could think, I remember it went through my mind, these filthy animals. Like, what? And so for three hours, I scrubbed toilets, I cleaned floors, I vacuumed. And there was one lady in particular. I don't even know who she was because I was never inside there. 
but she worked on the phone a lot. And I didn't, like, I've never cleaned my phone at home, right? But I, like, a note came down to me, like, you haven't cleaned so-and-so's phone. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I, the next night I went in there, and this lady obviously wore a whole lot of lipstick because her phone, the mouthpiece, was just covered in lipstick. And I had to, I had to get a Q-tip and get, like, lipstick out of the little holes in the receiver. And I just remember going, you are so gross. I don't know who you are. Quit kissing your phone. Lose the lipstick. I'll tell you, for weeks I did this job, and I hated it. I was so angry. And here's the problem. It had to do with my pride. This wasn't significant. I wasn't fulfilled. I didn't feel successful. Somebody gave me a book. Some of you may have read this. It's called Practicing the Presence of God by a monk named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence. And here was the story. It's a short little book, Practicing the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence uh, was a monk. It's fairly simple. And his assignment was to work in the kitchen. So for decades... He works in the kitchen. This is not what he anticipated when he signed up to be a monk. He anticipated, you know, unique things like making fruitcakes or, you know, being a missionary or something like that. But he's in the kitchen hours and hours a week cleaning, preparing. And it's, it's a story of how he learned to practice the presence of God in that kitchen. And it's a story of how he learned to pray and experience God's goodness and realize that what he did in this kitchen was a sacred place where God was. This was his assignment. So I read the book and I fought it, but I knew I've got to learn how to do this because my world was divided. In the mornings, I'm the Bible college student and this is sacred. In the afternoons, it was so secular, I couldn't stand it. So I remember the first day, lights were off, everybody went home. I grabbed my toilet brush, I grabbed my little cart, and I opened the bathroom door, and there were still filthy animals that had been there all week long. But I thought, God, I don't know how, but could this be a sacred place? And for two years, you know what I did? Every toilet I cleaned, I learned to pray. (laughs) I know it sounds weird. God, whoever uses this toilet tomorrow, I pray that you would be doing things in their life they wouldn't be aware of, that you would, Lord, strengthen them and they would come closer to you and vacuuming, God, every foot that walks down this hallway. I pray that they'd have experiences with you and they'd grow in you. And the phone lady, oh, Lord, I pray that you would make her secure so she wouldn't wear so much lipstick. But also, also, God, would, would you give her wisdom as she speaks and would she know you like she's never known you before? And it's the hardest lesson for me to learn, but here's the truth. There is nothing that's secular. It's all sacred. It's all part of the work that God has given me to do. This is so hard in my life. I carry with me in my wallet my four priorities. I've done this for probably 17 or 18 years. Here's my four priorities in life. Number one is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number two is to be a husband to my wife. Number three is to be a father to my children. And number four is my vocation. It's to be a pastor to the people in this church. And do you know why every day of my life I have to remind myself of these priorities? It's because which one jumps to the forefront? It's my job. 
It wants to keep creeping up the list of priorities. And for most of us, out of necessity, because bills need to be paid, because we have insecurities and we want to find success, the vocation comes to the front and we end up serving our vocation before we serve our God. It's natural. Happens to all of us. Constant adjustments. But when I understand that whatever I do, it's the work that God's given me, the the people, they're his people. And he loves them. And maybe it's dark in an office building. And you don't even see the people you ever pray for. Maybe you're at the refinery and you pray for the gas. And you'll never know who pumps that in their car. But you're like, God, this is sacred. This is a sacred place. There's something that changes. Now, I think as the baby boomer generation ages, we see a lot of books talking about finishing well. Finishing well. When we talk about finishing, well, I think about the end of my life. I think about something that's out there in the future still. It's getting closer all the time, but I think it's out there. I wonder if finishing well is more than, hey, what happens in my 70s and 80s and 90s? I wonder if it's about a daily decision. Some of, some of us in the room are retired. I've got bad news for you. You can read this book backwards and forwards and there's no such thing as retirement in the Bible. It's a a non-biblical reality. I will say this. I'm happy if you can retire from your job. But don't ever think that you can retire from the kingdom of Jesus. You have the accumulated knowledge (laughs) and wisdom to literally change the world. Don't step back. So what does it mean to succeed? What does it mean to finish well? What if? What if? Instead of seeing success as happiness that's out there, achievements of goals that's out there, seeing it even as what happens at my funeral that's out there, what if success was redefined by Jesus? As he lifts his eyes to his father, what if every day, I lifted my eyes to my father and I wasn't thinking about success of what happens 10 years down the road, but I said this today, Lord, I didn't do it perfect, but I brought you glory. I interacted with people where you're obscure in their perspective. They don't ever think of you. And any glory that came my way, I deflected it to you. And somehow people are just going to have a little bit more curiosity or understanding or passion to find God. I deflected all the glory to you. I made you big. I made me small. And God, today I finished the work you gave me to do. I made mistakes along the way, but whether it was changing diapers or changing tires, the things that you gave me to do, I did. And I realized that they were sacred. And the way that I ate and the way that I drank and whatever I did, I did it for your glory. That's a different definition of success. That's daily success. That's daily surrender and obedience. Will you pray with me? Lord, 
Many of us in the room would be on that treadmill pursuing success. Some of us have a profound sense of failure. I feel like we will never measure up, we'll never succeed. Lord, would you redefine for us what success is? Would it be this? Would it be bringing glory to our Father through our imperfect lives? And would it be embracing the work that you've given us to do in finishing it? Every day, no matter how mundane it seems, that this life is sacred, that what you're doing through us is sacred, that there's no division, there's no bifurcation of that sacred, this is secular. It's all one. Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, would we do it for your glory?